Hi, I'm Rasa Kay. I'm talking with Dr. Daniel Ice. He's an attending interventional cardiologist at Deborah Heart and Lung Center in Burlington County. So explain atrial fibrillation and why it poses stroke risk. First of all, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So atrial fibrillation is the most common arrhythmia, uh, which is marked by an irregular and often a rapid heart rate. It's not a life-threatening condition by itself, but it is a significant risk factor for stroke. Atrial fibrillation can cause or uh, can increase a person's stroke risk by three to five times, and certainly is uh, something that needs to be looked at carefully when a patient has this arrhythmia. Because of its irregularity, it can cause blood to pool in certain chambers of the heart, particularly in the left atrial appendage, which is uh, basically a pouch that comes off one of the chambers. About 90% of the blood clots that form in atrial fibrillation form within this pouch. When the blood clot forms in there, there's always a risk that that can uh, break off. It can travel within the bloodstream and uh, certainly travel up to the brain where it would cause a stroke. And because of the risk of these blood clot formations, patients need to be medicated or have their blood thinned out to decrease their risk for clot formation, and uh, which then decreases the risk for stroke. When someone's experiencing AFib, they know it, or is this one of those silent disease processes? Well, it can be symptomatic in some individuals and can be asymptomatic in others. Oftentimes, uh, patients may feel some fluttering of, in their chest, palpitations. They may feel slightly shorter breath. Others may feel uh, some mild chest discomfort. They may feel notice that they've been uh, more fatigued than usual. But a lot of patients may not feel anything and can certainly have silent symptoms. Uh, and this condition or, or arrhythmia may not be detected until they go see their um, medical provider and Either it's detected by physical exam or by an EKG. So the degrees of atrial fibrillation, how do you decide you need to treat it? How do you decide how you want to treat it? Well, often this is uh, patient-specific. When the arrhythmia is going fast, it does need to be slowed down. Oftentimes, uh, the arrhythmia can be corrected uh, either by uh, electrical cardioversion or by pharmacological cardioversion otherwise known as medications, that can help put the rhythm back into a normal state. But that's also dependent on uh, other conditions associated with the patient. Basically, if they can handle whatever it is that you want to prescribe. So what are the alternatives for someone with atrial fibrillation? Well, certainly in terms of uh, dealing with the stroke risk, we've had blood thinners that have uh, helped us reduce uh, someone's stroke risk, particularly those that are high stroke risk, uh, depending on their age and other risk factors. But with those blood thinners comes risk themselves, including bleeding. And so over the years, that has always been an issue that we've had to dealt with in the medical community. And uh, that has allowed uh, some newer technology to come about to, to help reduce the stroke risk, particularly in patients that have high bleeding risk as well. And so one of those uh, is uh, some technology that we're currently using at Deborah right now uh, called the Watchman device. This is a, a device that uh, is implantable and um, basically goes in and occludes open a small pouch that comes off the heart called the left atrial appendage and prevents blood clots that can form in that appendage from coming out of that pouch-like structure 
and traveling into the bloodstream and, and going up to the brain where it can cause a stroke. What is the order of treatment then for someone who's been diagnosed with atrial fibrillation? Well, first of all, it's it's looking at some of uh, both their age as well as other risk factors to determine what their stroke risk may be. Uh, we do have some currently used uh, risk factor scales that we can sort of add up certain factors to determine what their stroke risk will be per year. And in those that are deemed high enough, usually a blood thinner or a uh, and otherwise called an anticoagulant medication, can be prescribed to thin the blood out to prevent these uh, blood clots from forming. But not everyone is at such high risk that they need to be on those blood thinners. But uh, a large majority of, of atrial fibrillation patients uh, do fall in this category where they do need blood thinning to prevent clot formation. The next thing would be uh, starting patients on those medications and see how they do. And for uh, at least a particular percentage of these patients, because their blood is thin experiencing bleeding events, oftentimes in their GI tract, where they start to uh, have blood in their stools. And therefore, we then have to reconsider whether we're going to use these medications or not. Okay, And you have to balance the risks of having a stroke with the risks of having a bleeding event. Hence, you have technology that you can apply to this situation. Right. So for these atrial fibrillation patients that would benefit from being on a blood thinner, yet who may have had a history of bleeding or be at very high risk for bleeding. Uh, now we have another option that we can use to reduce the, the clot formation risk as well as the stroke risk, and that is by putting in this new technology, uh, which may reduce the risk of clot formation within the heart and therefore allow us to take them off of blood thinning medicines or, or, and keep them off of them. Who would be a poor candidate for this? Poor candidates for this are those individuals who are able to tolerate blood thinning medicines uh, without any difficulty, who may have low bleeding risks. Certainly those that uh, cannot tolerate any blood thinning medicines at all, because even after we do the procedure, they are required to be on uh, warfarin uh, for typically at least 45 days after. And so if they cannot tolerate it at all, they're a poor candidate. Any patient uh, who also cannot tolerate aspirin and Plavix, which is uh, commonly used after someone is transitioned off of the warfarin, would be a poor candidate. And then sometimes uh, given an individual's uh, particular anatomy, their, their pouch may be either too small or too large uh, to accommodate the device. When do you figure that little bit of information out. Is, is there, what kind of imaging do you do then to, to ascertain that? Well, there are some tests we, that we require uh, prior to doing the procedure to assess someone's anatomy so we can size up their heart, size up their uh, the appendage pouch that comes off their heart to determine whether we feel like they would be a good candidate or not. So the watchman that you're talking about that you do here at, uh, at Deborah, how, how new is it? Deborah has been doing it for about the past two years now. A lot of hospitals and, and institutions in Europe were doing it prior to the U.S., uh, prior to it becoming really popular in the U.S. It is an invasive procedure whereby uh, we do go through one of the veins in the legs and run a catheter that has the device on it uh, up to the heart where we can implant the device. Uh, so basically it's a, a catheter-based uh, procedure, but it's not actually surgery. There's uh, no surgical scars after the procedure, and typically the patient goes home with a simple bandage uh, over the site that we use. What kind of image guidance do you have for deploying this? 
So we use two types of imaging. We use um, fluoroscopy, which is basically X-ray technology, as well as uh, sophisticated ultrasound, uh, something called a TEE that we'll use to help guide us to precisely implant the device exactly where we want it to be. So what's the whole experience like for the patient? First, they need to be deemed a good candidate uh, and have the um, indicated reasons for undergoing the procedure. Then they would be required to come in and, and get some imaging done of their heart. Uh, all patients are required to have at least a sophisticated ultrasound of their heart called a transesophageal echocardiogram, or a TEE for short, uh, which is um, basically a, a ultrasound probe that is inserted down the esophagus uh, while the patient is sedated and asleep, where we can take very good, clear pictures of the heart and try to determine the size of this appendage or pouch-like structure. In some cases, a cardiac CT may also be required as well um, to give us additional information. Is there a great variability in the size of of the appendage? Absolutely. The differences in measurements may not be large differences to a normal person. Uh, It certainly makes a a big difference when we're talking about even millimeters in this case. The actual procedure itself, how long does that take? Typically, the patient would uh, have some pre-testing, pre-blood work done prior to the procedure. They would come in and have the procedure done in one day. It it commonly would take uh, anywhere from one to two hours. Uh, They would uh, go to recovery afterward, end up staying the night, and the majority of patients go home the next day. I'm talking with Dr. Daniel Ice. He's an attending interventional cardiologist at Deborah Heart and Lung Center in Burlington County. So you've been doing here at Deborah for a couple of years. How have your patients' lives been changed? What's the difference in in living with AFib after they've gotten a watchman at Deborah? The procedure here has uh, gone very well for us over the past two years. Um, We're doing more and more of them now. For our patients, it's been a very positive experience. Most importantly, the fact that after doing the procedure and implanting one of these devices allowed almost everyone to come off of their blood thinning medications where they don't have to take these blood thinners uh, for the rest of their lives, uh, which is uh, a very positive thing to be able to, to offer a patient. So far, we've had 30 patients undergo the procedure who have met the 45-day follow-up period mark, and of those 30 patients, only one has not been able to come off at that time, Uh, and that was for other reasons not associated with the device itself. So I would say that's pretty good numbers. So insurance companies, Medicare, cover this? Yes, Medicare covers it as well as uh, almost all insurance companies. What is this device made of? So the device is made of nitinol, uh, which is material commonly used in in my field of uh, interventional cardiology in terms of uh, there's stents that we use that are uh, made of nitinol. You should have no concerns going through the airport. It's not going to set off medical detectors. It's uh, MRI compatible, so you can still have an MRI done uh, after receiving the device. This is one of the implantables that you work with here at Deborah. Fortunately, our field is... um, Ever-changing and and new exciting devices are uh, becoming available every few years, whether it's in terms of the coronary arteries, the leg arteries, the heart valves for arrhythmias. This device is one of them. We currently are doing valvular replacements over a catheter as well for the aortic valve, and uh, hopefully the mitral valve would be available over the next few years. For coronary stenting, we now have a new coronary stent that uh, allows us to more easily address blockages when they occur 
where a vessel branches into two, which has always been a, a bit of a complex situation to handle. And this allows us to more easily do that. The biggest change in the last couple of years in treating these issues is, I mean, how often do we ever have to really go in surgically? Certainly, there's still a time and a place for the operating room and for surgery, and some patients still require that, particularly those patients that are at low surgical risk for having these procedures done. But both technology as well as um, patient demand uh, is kind of driving more of a less invasive approach, uh, more catheter-based approaches that can be done with uh, without any surgical scars and basically a Band-Aid to cover the, the in- insertion site. There's been a lot of research and um, both in academic institutions as well as uh, in industry that is trying to address mitral valve disorders uh, and how we can do it more in a minimally invasive and catheter-based approach. There's been a lot of technology trying to address that issue and how can we go in and replace the mitral valve without doing surgery. And I think over the next one to three years, uh, we hopefully will have a realistic viable product that is reliable and uh, easily deployed. What has been the, I guess, unintended consequence of the success of the Watchmen and programs like it here at Deborah? Well, I think the unintended success is that more and more patients are asking for it or asking to see if they're eligible for it. Not necessarily everyone is eligible for it. You know, it's different than other types of uh, cardiac uh, interventional procedures in that it's more of a elective procedure that patients don't necessarily have to have, but certainly it's good that we can offer it as an option for these patients. Other procedures, patients really need to have it because uh, of symptoms or further disease processes, etc. This procedure, as well as some of the other procedures we've spoken about, uh, are really cool in the fact that Patients don't always need to have surgery. They don't need to be in the hospital for four or five days or two weeks in recovery. Uh, They can often come in for a catheter-based procedure, go home the next day, and return back to their normal life without having to recuperate, without having to have a significant amount of rehabilitation. And I think anytime we can provide that, it offers a better experience for the patient as well as uh, increases the patient satisfaction. Um, Better outcomes less complications, less days spent in the hospital, which ends up saving healthcare dollars. If someone's doctor tells them that, uh, you know, okay, we've got an AFib thing to deal with here, you may need a procedure you're not tolerating, blood thinners well, let's look into an implantable. And of course, their first thought is Deborah Heart and Lung Center. How do they get in touch with you? Well, I think the easiest way to uh, get in touch with us as well as get more information is go to our website, www.demandabora.org, O-R-G, uh, where they can find more information there as well as navigate to uh, getting an appointment here and being seen by a specialist.